Welcome to episode 264 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. <laughs> Your intro is exceptional. It up. I just thought I'd switch it up. It was incredible. The energy, like I hope everybody was feeling that immense energy that you just brought. Like already, I'm ready to get after our topic, yeah. which on this episode is going to be divine processions. But of course, before we get there, we got a little business to do. And that business is affirmations and denials, which apparently the people love. We, and I, we've got to give them what they love. They love it. I don't know. I, I think just, it's just, if we didn't do it, people would riot. <laughs> Our listeners affirm affirmations and denials. It's true. You know what I love about this just generally is that when I get some feedback about this particular section of the podcast, they usually use that same language that affirm yeah. deny. If anything, we're bringing that back. I know. Like I love that we're bringing that style back, which is like, there's such a rich tapestry and history yes. in the reform tradition of affirming with and denying against. So I'd like to bring that into just casual conversation. I think actually you and I speak this way when we're together anyway. Yeah, we do. So for us, it's normative, but I'd like everybody else to like in their just, you know, dinnertime conversations to be like, you know what I affirm with today and just say something. Like at Thanksgiving dinner be like, you know, I yes. really just affirm these, these sweet potatoes. <laughs> I deny, I deny this cranberry jello though. <laughs> Wait, is that how you feel about cranberry jello? I hate cranberry jello. All kinds of cranberry jello? Yeah, I just, I don't know what it is. I've just never liked it. Do you like jello? Yeah, I like jello. Jello's okay. There's always room for jello. Just not cranberry okay. jello. There's never room for cranberry jello. So you just don't like cranberries? No, I like cranberries. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a mystery, like the Trinity. This is great. Wow. Listen, yeah. too soon too soon we're not even yeah, there we're not yet. ready to transition yet so i jumped the we, gun on that one we are not ready but of course we are ready to do some affirmations and denials and of course i defer to you good yeah. sir what would you like to start with i'm going to start with an affirmation i'm going to keep it short i'm going to keep it sweet i'm affirming this new show that we are welcoming well blah, 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 easy for me to say that we are welcoming to the society of reform podcasters this is another solo show it's called the fox's den um it's Hosted by a guy named Terry Fox, and um, it's just good, short, kind of like 10, 15 minute, sort sort of devotional style ones. It's kind of geared right. more towards the new believers, so it's a little bit more uh, foundational kinds of stuff. It's not, you know, you're not going to be talking about divine processions or anything on this uh, podcast, but that's good because not every Christian is at the same level and in the same place. So it's always good to introduce something that uh, makes a good kind of primer to the faith. So uh, you'll have all of those episodes in your feed if you're subscribed to the mega feed. Uh, otherwise, if you want to just check out his show, it's called The Fox's Den. You can find it anywhere you find podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. Unless you're one of those weird people that like goes to the website and downloads the podcast every week, which I, there are people that do that apparently. There's this thing called a podcast app that you should just download and subscribe to us. But yeah, Fox Den, it's great. And actually, he contacted me like a year and a half ago, and I finally just got around to like doing the background stuff. So my apologies that this awesome content did not make it to your ear holes sooner. But uh, check it out if you want. Like I said, subscribe to the Mega Feed. You get everything that we've got going on at the Society for Reform Podcasters. Otherwise, you can uh, check out his show by looking up the Fox's Den. This is a great time. 
to just go back to affirming generally reformpodcast.com where you can yes. find the full family, the cousins, the brothers, the sisters, the parents, the uncles, the aunts of the entire family of all these reform podcasts. And I just went out to the website and just on the upper right-hand corner, just moused over the word shows. This is deep, man. We've got a deep lineup now of all kinds of amazing good stuff, all kinds of variety. We know you got lots of hours in your week. You might be driving, walking, cleaning, you're scrubbing a bathtub. You're like, what can I do during this time? Redeem that. I mean, yes. there's something, there is some redemption in making your tub really clean. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful perhaps than like having a really nice clean tub, but you can even use that time to hear something about God's goodness, about practical theology. There's so much good stuff. So reformpodcast.com. If you are that kind of person, it's like, you know what? I like to go out myself and cherry pick from the website and listen to stuff. That's fine. I don't know. That's take true. your computer in the bathroom while you clean, yeah. or you can just use your phone to subscribe to any one of these guys or the full enchilada, as we'd like to say, the it's mega true. feed. Yeah, I think we're up everything. to like three episodes per day, uh, Monday through Friday now. It's awesome. Average. There's a lot of content. It's awesome. And the content, here's what I love about this little society, not to like toot our own horn, but that is like everything is very different. Lots of different personalities, yep. different formats, different release schedules, different emphasis. Like it's really a diverse group. So here's the thing. It's like a giant theological buffet of really solid doctrinal content that you can kind of pick and choose. So like, you know, you want a little bit more dessert, you want a little bit more savory. That's fine. Like you hit up reform brotherhood or you hit up like, yeah, the Fox is dead. Like, by the way, anything that has like a Fox in the title, I'm totally down with. Yeah. So fantastic. So yeah, I affirm what you just said and I'm double affirming, affirming squared reform podcast as part of the reform society. Yeah. I don't know anywhere else where you can, uh, at the same, on the same channel, basically you can get deep theological conversations about the inner metaf metaphysical workings of the Trinity and also skits about crime detectives. So <laughs> you can get, you can get a little bit of everything on the society of reform podcasters. That's true. Test, test our diversity, test the breadth and the scope because there's a lot there to be had. So We've yeah, done that, it again. it's always, a, it's always a good, <laughs> like that. it's always a good reminder that there's a lot of good stuff out there besides us. Like we appreciate that you're listening to us. If you want other stuff or different stuff, maybe you're listening to us. And you're like, I don't like you guys. Well, that's fine. Don't hold that against the entire society of reform podcasts. There's lots of things true. that are not like us. So go out there and take a listen. I think I can say unequivocally, you will be blessed. You will. What about you? What are you affirming this week? I'm also going to keep it short. So I think one of the things that we've discovered is that in doing these affirmations and denials, we find that it's impossible to abstract from spiritual reality in both the things that we affirm with and deny against. And I found this is one of those things. So I would have to say my favorite winter sport is skiing. I miss skiing. I don't get to do as much alpine downhill skiing as I used to. And growing up in New Hampshire, it has like this really wonderful, warm place in my heart. And I came across a video on YouTube. I think it was actually just posted a couple of days ago. I'm affirming with everybody going out and searching for ultimate ski run, ultimate ski run. I'm affirming with this video. It's Marcus Edders, and he's basically like a freestyle skier. And this video is, first of all, it's 10 minutes long. And when I came across it, I was like, there's no way I'm going to watch 10 minutes of this guy ski. And then it was over. The music is excellent. Nice. The ski, like the cinematography is amazing. It took 109 days to film what you're going to see in the 10 minutes. But here's the thing. Here's the spiritual component. 
we've ended up so many times with affirmations and denials on this idea of dominion, basically going back to Genesis 2, where God says like, you know, humankind is meant to subdue all of the living creatures, but also the earth itself. And for me, when I see like this video of Marcus Edders doing his thing, this is like pure domination of God's creation because you're talking about gravity and slope and conditions that are crazy like snow. And when you see somebody ski and they ski well, they're not just like domineering what God has created. They're doing it in such a way where there's like an outer beauty and outer graciousness to what they're doing that is poetic and glorious. And this video is exactly that. So if you think I'm hyping it up too much, I would say to you, Go to YouTube and search for Ultimate Ski Run. I think even if you're not a skier, you will really just enjoy the beauty. It's in the Alps. It's magnificent. And it's like watching a ballet that happens on a mountain. And I think you'll be like me and say, wow, that is Genesis 2 right there in action. It's like anybody strapping basically fiberglass planks to their feet and then using that to ride down a mountain with beauty and grace is certainly exhibiting everything that God commands nice. in the second chapter of Genesis. You know, the first time I ever went skiing, I just like got off the ski lift and went down on like a black diamond. I mean, this was Minnesota, so it's like a black diamond in Minnesota is like, I don't know, like the bunny hill in Colorado, but uh, <laughs> I just like bombed the hill like straight down. It was totally fine. Wow. And then the next, the next weekend we went skiing again and I totally like whiffed it on like a super easy run and like jacked my shoulder out of, out of joint. It was pretty bad. So I did not take dominion that second time. And I just had dumb, <laughs> dumb luck the first time. It wasn't, it wasn't skill. There was no balance or anything. I just managed not to fall over. I mean, skiing is no joke. It, it's really a beautiful sport. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I don't know. There's something about it. Like there's something about your, like you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Right. In a sense, yeah. like you're literally riding down a mountain on these planks and to do it well and to do it in such a way where you're like, you're basically leveraging everything. You're leveraging gravity and slope and the contour of the grounds, like everything you're taking advantage of. You're yeah. doing something you shouldn't be doing theoretically. And to make it in such a way where like you are, I don't know, like you're doing something that's glorious. Like you're performing, you are overachieving in an environment that you shouldn't be. Right. It's just incredible. So he, I mean, he goes through like a castle in this video. It's amazing. I mean, that's also like skiing that can only happen in like the German yeah. Alps. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. He likes skis past like Snow White and like the dwarves. <laughs> grabs the apple out of her hand. He's like, "Don't eat that. It's bad for you." Yeah, more or less. Yeah. It's it's exactly yeah. That's, I, don't, I mean, yeah. I don't want to spoil it. Yeah. But and that's yeah, why it's the Snow ultimate White ski run. He like goes through dimensions and into storybooks. It's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, there's a bunch of dwarves. It's exceptional. Yeah, yeah I highly agree. All right, so what are you the denying one ring, against? The one ring from Frodo throws it in Mount Doom on his way past. Um, <laughs> this just got out of hand. I'm denying. So, so we are supposed to take dominion over God's creation as His, uh, you know, vice chairs and images. The one thing I don't think we're supposed to take dominion over is time. So this is my standard twice a year denial of this ridiculous, stupid concept that we call daylight saving time. Mm. Like it's, it's, I, it's just dumb. It's dumb. There's no good reason for it. Like, I don't remember which podcast it was. I'll have to try to look it up and I'll never, I'll never fulfill this promise, but I'll try to look it up and put it in the show notes. But like one guy was talking about, he did, was trying to do like an extensive history of daylight saving time. He couldn't even really figure out where the, where the concept came from. Like we know like roughly when it was implemented and like the history right. of it, but like who came up with this idea that like, I don't know, like 
Uh, twice a year, we're just going to change the clocks. Like, no big deal. It's not for the farmers. The farmers hate it. It's not, it's not like for a while, some people thought maybe it was for like school age kids. Uh, but like that doesn't really work because it actually ends up with them standing out in the dark more certain times a year. Like there's no good logical reason behind it. And it would literally take an act of Congress for us to get everybody on the same page. Cause the problem is like we, each individual state could choose not to do daylight right. savings time or daylight saving time and stay on standard time. But the problem you, is, Arizona. right. The problem is that the actual scientific best option for like the the most of the United States to get the most sunlight possible would be for the entire country to go on to daylight saving time and stay there. That would be like every place in the country gets the most possible sunlight that they could get. Uh, but there's no provision in the law that regulates daylight saving time that would allow every state to op- any state to opt into staying on daylight saving time. The only thing they could do is opt out of going on onto daylight saving time. So right. There's not much more to say about it. It's just dumb. I don't care that I got an extra hour of sleep this morning because my dog is super confused and doesn't know what time it's supposed to eat dinner anymore. <laughs> it, like it's it's just a mess. It's just dumb. There's it makes right no sense. That's all. That's oh, that's the denial. That's the whole thing. Oh, that was heavy. That came yeah. to like a sudden stop. Like we just hit the brakes. I totally agree with you. I think we've been outspoken. Hopefully, our listeners who have been with us for a little while have recognized that. We tend to come back to this because it is such a good denial. It just so doesn't make a whole it's lot so of dumb. sense. Yeah, it's so <laughs> dumb. It is. And I'm with you in that. And in my line of work, there are occasionally people I interact with, for instance, in Arizona. And this time of year, it always jacks you up because you have to figure out again whether or not like they're complying with the same state. So now you actually have like a kind of this double effect because you're off. They were never off in their eyes. And so now you have to like double count for that and figure oh, out and what's going on. It's even weirder in Arizona because so the, the state of Arizona as a whole doesn't doesn't switch over to daylight saving time. Right. But there's a uh, like a Native American group that has a yes. large tract of land that does yes. switch right. over to daylight saving time. And then there's another part of Arizona that doesn't, and then another part that does. So as you travel through the state, you may actually go through two or three different bands of different time arrangements. So it's not even enough to be like, all right, I remember Arizona. This time of year, it's three to three hours behind me. This time of year, it's two hours behind me. Like you have to, like you have to almost like plug in the latitude. There, someone needs to make like an app for your phone that's like, what the egg time is it in? in Arizona right now in on these latitude and longitude. I mean, you could probably just like type right. that into Google, but I just feel like it's a lot easier now than it ever was. Cause you just, you just ask Google what time it is in Sedona, Arizona or whatever. But like, yeah, it's just dumb. There's nothing, there's nothing redemptive about it. It's just straight up a result of the fall. It's definitely antiquated for yeah. sure. I blame big candy. Yeah, I mean, it might be big candy, but I'll tell you what, normally we invite contrary opinions, but if you are someone that thinks daylight saving time <laughs> is a good idea, just go ahead and smash that unsubscribe button because we don't want wow. you. We don't want you. Wow. I'm that confident that you're not out there. You know who probably likes daylight saving time? Who? Doug Wilson. That's it. Isn't November like his yeah, it's daylight like, saving like time? No quarter November and also like daylight saving time is the best. That's like right. his two mottos. That, well, I, this I is probably fig- slander. He, this is probably like the one rational opinion he holds is that daylight saving time is is stupid. I'd like to see him write a no quarter November article against it. I could get behind that if he just railed <laughs> against it. 
I always figured that's why he picked November because he gets an extra hour. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't I mean, know. Here's the, here's the thing too about this is like, and I learned this, not I learned this. It was reemphasized to me by stealing along with my wife, who is very interested in watching the Loki series, which yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to comprehend. But this idea of the TVA, you basically, uh, there's an economic concept that's called like Ricardian equivalence, which basically speaks to the fact that when I always crack up, people be like, well, we get an extra hour of sleep. Like, no, you paid for that already. You don't actually, there is no extra time. So like this idea of like, you can stay up later. Like, no, you already suffered through that. Like, so why not just stop your body clock from getting jacked up and just keep everything consistent and let God change the seasons appropriately. And he is the best at determining the light in the dark. That's his jam. That's what he does. It's kind of like when you pay taxes on your paycheck and then the government gives some of the money back to you. Thank you. And you're like, I got this huge rebate. No, you didn't. Like you didn't. You actually just gave the government an interest free loan for like, thank you. Like seven or eight months out of the year before they give it back to you. So yeah. Yeah. It's just dumb. Just let's, let's just not do it. I, I mean, what would happen if we all showed up to, well, I suppose this time of year, if we all showed up at work to work an hour early and left an hour early, they can't fire us all, right? I don't know. It depends where you work. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, why don't we move on? Because I feel like we could, this could turn into the episode. So yeah, what are you so denying this week? I'm going to slightly pivot just ever so slightly and say that I'm denying against a lack of awareness of the firmament, which is kind of, in some ways a tangent to what you just spoke on. But uh, I'm realizing again, because and only because my, the old farmer's almanac just turned over and the new version is now oh, applicable, which everybody should go get. Witchcraft. But I was just reading through it and I don't know why. I, I just love so much looking at what's going on in the sky. So um, I'm just denying against this idea that there's so much out there that's just like playing to the eye to see that like when you go take out the trash in the evening or you come back late from an appointment to just look up and I fail to do this so often. And it just makes me like embarrassed at how remarkable the world is that God has created and how small I feel in it and how great his majesty is reflected in it. When I take just a small amount of time, like between the car and the door to look up and reflect on that. So I'm wrapping up like a little bit of a recommendation in this denial. And that is I'm going to affirm with an app called sky tonight, nice. which will help you see wherever you live. Cause it's it all could be like GPS located what's going on in the sky. And right now, if you live like in the Northern hemisphere, you're going to be able to see Saturn and Jupiter like in Venus easily like so like it's just amazing to me in fact you may have thought those are just really bright stars you may have mistaken them for polaris which is the north star but like it's just amazing to me that i can go out and look and see venus like right just plain as day so to speak and to just reflect on the fact that god has made this incredible universe for us to enjoy and how often i just like pass by it like you know like this sense of like where i belong in it how small i am as a part of it and yet that god loves us and that he sees us and that he is for us, like in the midst of this crazy, vast expanse that he has created. And there's something about the night sky that helps us to see that, pun intended, a little bit more clearly. Nice. So I'm just denying against this like lack of awareness, which we all have because we're busy and because we're often not prone to look up at night to just forget that we live in this vast cosmos, which God has 
wonderfully gifted to us as I think an expression of his love and a sign of his majesty. And of course, we only have to go to the psalmist to see that there in the firmament, everything is declaring the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah. I I used to be really big into astronomy and I wanted to take astronomy classes in college. But then I realized that to take an astronomy cast in college, you usually have to get up super early because that's when you have like, <laughs> sc- like you have telescope time. So I, I dropped that class right quick. But I do like that's astronomy. That's what did it. That's what did it. Yeah, I woke up one morning and I was like, no, it was like it was like January. It was like two in the morning. I was supposed to report to the school at like four in the morning. I was like, no, I'm not going to do this. This is all done. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. I, so here's the thing: like the denial for me comes from. There's something I think for maybe, maybe I'm not the average person. I think there's something for the average person where there is like an increase of joy when you can look up and say, oh, that's Venus or that's Jupiter or that's the North Star. That's like the Big Dipper. Like, and that brings like this different sense of appreciation for the glory of God in his creation. So I'm kind of saying like, let's all lean into that a little bit. Like it it doesn't take much. Like this app is a really good way. For you, if you're kind of like, I don't know how to find things in the sky, like that's totally cool. Like luckily, unlike other times in history, now you can go to this application, even if you live in like a, a city area where it's it's hard to see things. Like Venus is super bright right now. Yeah. And so it's just it's just an amazing thing. Like I just can't believe like you can see three three planets, like just with your eyes. You can just yep. go outside and be like, that's three planets. Like that's and here a I am. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's that's how we should say it. Like, that's a planet. That's a planet. Yeah. That's a planet. Yeah. Well, before we get into our episode, I do want to bring one thing to the front. I neglected to bring this up last week, and I promised people that I was going to do it. Uh, someone on Twitter, Troy Eckleberry uh, is the handle, uh, pointed out to me where the Edmund Clowney uh, sermon that I was referencing could be located. So I'm not going to try to read the URL because it's like a weird, messy sermon audio URL. But I will put that, and I know I say I don't do this, but I actually will do it. I will put that link into the episode notes this week. So go listen to it. It's a phenomenal sermon. It's super straightforward, uh, but it really underscores what we were talking about, that the biblical evidence for uh, the Trinity really is everywhere throughout the whole Bible. It's not just a New Testament phenomena. It's not just a prophetic book phenomena. This is like the book of Numbers, like one of those books that you feel like you kind of have to slog through a little bit. In reality, like Christ is on every page. So if if you're able to look for him and see him, like that helps you get through those books a little little bit easier sometimes. Assurance of Pardon just did a, a really awesome episode on um, Jesus in the book of Leviticus. And they kind of called this out that like you, you sometimes we get stuck in Leviticus because we don't really, we don't really know how it connects to us. Like I don't have leprosy. My house probably doesn't have leprosy. So what's the deal with this? Right. And even if I did, I don't have a priest that's going to like take a scraping off the wall and check in and like, but if like you see Jesus, then all of a sudden, like now this is, this is, and always was our book as Christians. This is our scriptures. So um, I'll put that in there. Check it out. Uh, if you're going to listen to one thing this week, listen to that, T- turn this off, go listen to that, but then come back and listen to this because it really is just great. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that uh, somebody, man, we have great listeners, right? We have we do. lovely brothers and sisters who will follow through and basically write the show notes for us. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> we didn't even try to crowdsource that one out and it just happened. That's that's the Reformed Brotherhood in action. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So speaking of action and Reformed Brotherhood and theology, all those great things put in a blender, stirred up. And you know what comes out? A divine procession smoothie. <laughs> Yeah, so Divine Processions may take the cake for the worst named 
doctrine in history. Agreed. Uh, because it can be very confusing, right? Because we talk about how, uh, and we'll get into these details, but we talk about how the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and right. we'll, uh, and the Son in the Western tradition, which both Jesse and I would affirm. Uh, and then uh, we say that the Son does not proceed from the Father, but he's begotten of the Father. But then we'll call both of those things processions. So when we talk about divine processions, what we're talking about is the relations within the Trinity, right? We'll, right? we'll go back to the Nicene Creed here in a minute, and I'll read a little bit from it. But we, we see in the Nicene Creed, and this is a little sneak peek of what's coming next week, there's there's a person identified, right? There's the Father, the Son, the Spirit are identified by name. And then there's a statement, uh, not in the case of the Father, but in the case of the Son and the Spirit, there's a statement that basically is their personal identity explained, why it is that they're the Spirit or why it is that the Son is the Son. And that's what we're talking about when we say divine procession. So the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds or is spirated from the, the Father and the Son. Um, and then we have a statement of their work, right? So there's, I believe in, in uh, the son, and then it's who proceeds from the father, and then it's who suffered under, who, who for us in our, our uh, salvation became man, right? So it's, it's the person, and then it's a, a statement about how they're distinguished from the other persons, which we call processions, and then there's a statement of their work, which we're going to talk about next week in a, in a roundabout way, and that's called the missions. So we have the, right. the person themselves talk about the divine nature. We talk about the persons as persons and how they're delineated or distinguished from each other. And then we talk about the mission of the son and the spirit into the world and all that comes with it. So this week we're talking about those processions. And this is a, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because this is a topic that is really, really jacked up in, in evangelical reformish right. theology right now. So you, when we talk about things like eternal functional subordination, right? That's the that's the mission or the processions getting screwed up by people like Wayne Grudem or Bruce Ware or Owen Strahan or Doug Wilson, right? They're trying to take the processions and the theology of the processions, the divine processions, and they're trying to make it do something that it never has done in the historic tradition and that it shouldn't do. And when they end up in some sort of error because they don't understand this stuff. So this is, again, like we said last week, like this is basic Christian doctrine, understanding how it is we know that the Son is the Son as compared to the Father or the Spirit, or how it is we know that the Father is the Father as compared to the Son or the Spirit or you know, or the Spirit likewise. That's important for us because if we're not careful, we end up with this sort of like undifferentiated triad of persons that really could be interchangeable and we don't really understand exactly why they're not, but we, we kind of affirm that they are even though we don't really understand it. So this is, if you don't understand these things, you don't really understand the doctrine of the Trinity, at least not in its fullest, uh, most robust, most accurate way of looking at things. Once again, you beat me to it. I was going to give that contractual obligation that we have to say that as part of our prefaces conversation, we're essentially speaking against a lot of controversy that's right. happening right now and it's continuing and it has practical impact. And so I want to give out for like all the brothers, sisters who are listening, like the other names for this EFS controversy. So sometimes it goes by the name and we did the whole episode or several episodes, yes. right? At this point, yeah. know, like a whole, and I'm sure we will do more. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, it's not going away. And I think that that's the all the more reason to say, well, let's go back to the first principles 
of the Trinity and this idea of divine procession. But in case you want to keep score at home or look out for what this thing is called. So sometimes it's called, and I want, I would encourage everybody as they listen to these names, think about what they're trying to convey. So sometimes it's called eternal subordination of the son. I've heard it called eternal relations of authority and submission. Have you heard that one? Yep. ERAS, which is just a weird acronym. Uh, Eternal functional subordination, which is the one that often comes by. And that's what we talk about. And you hear that word functional. And the reason why I bring this up is because even when I talk to people, uh, just uh, all kinds of brothers and sisters about this, sometimes or often the first objection they say is, or they raise is that, well, there is like some kind of submission there. So like they cry foul on this idea of this idea of submission. So where we're starting is this idea of it's worth knowing that the father and the son, they're, they're going to share the same essence and rank. I think we talked about this already. Right. But in their relationship, but the son submits to the father. We're not saying there isn't any submission. The son, the son submits to the father while the father never submits to the son. But there's no inferiority. There's no inequality. There's just different roles. So it's almost better to say that there's always been an order in the Trinity, an order not of rank, but of well-arranged relationships. Right. And so we need to understand like what is reaching too far then in understanding how there is this procession, this coming forward, this almost, because again, when I think of procession, I think of parade. Yeah. And so this idea of like, well, I'm going to reorder things in some kind of hierarchy of importance or magnitude or authority. The father sends the son and the father and the son send the spirit and the relations are not reversible. I think we'd all acknowledge that. Mutuality and equality exist in the Trinity alongside a divinely instituted order. And so that's what led some like Calvin, I'm just going to quote him here to write, because he writes better than I do. For even though we admit that in respect to order and degree, the beginning of divinity is in the Father, yet we say it is detestable invention that essence is proper to the Father alone as if he were the deifier of the son and right. quote. Yeah. That's all I like kind of prolegomena. Like I'm trying to set the stage for like, there's lots of people who thought through this. And in our time, for whatever reason, there's some trying to build bridges that are way too far Yeah. in this idea that there is an, a, a functional subordination. That's for me, that's the key word, right? Like yeah. this functional idea, not the relational, but functional. And so some might say like, listen, you guys are talking about things that are really interesting to think about but have no practical reaching, we're going to get there. Right. All of this actually is intensely practical. Right. It changes who Jesus is. It changes what he accomplishes. It actually, in many ways, undoes a lot of the stuff we've talked about already, right. like the simplicity of God and everything else. We'll get there. But there's a lot to kind of like set the stage and say, like, this is a topic that is worth us discussing. So I say to you, brother, where do we go? Where's the best place to start on this? Well, as usually is the case with us, the best place to start is to continue offering more clarifications. So one of the things you'll notice when, when you have conversations like this is there's a shared inherited grammar that anyone who has had any sort of real exposure to kind of new Calvinism, right? Think about the people who carry an ESV to church. These are the people I'm talking about. And I, I, I mean, I'm saying that's this seriously me. because this, no, I know that's, I'm, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about all of us who, who carry an ESV. Did you just Paul Washer me? Well, kind of, sort of a little bit, but, but here's the point is that a person who's listened to our episodes about EFS or ERAS or right. ESS or whatever you want to call it is actually right. going to cry foul a little bit to what Jesse even just said. And that's right. because we have this shared grammar that we've inherited and and you we get it because people like Bruce Ware or more so people like Wayne Grudem 
have actually embedded some of this kind of language and thinking into things like the ESV study Bible, which was hugely influential. So like prior to maybe like, I know I'm looking at the clock, like this is going to tell me prior to like, maybe like 1970, 1960, the term role was never applied to the Trinity. Right. Right, The the father, son, and spirit were never considered roles. Now, when we use that, that's just embedded in the way we talk about it. It's not a great way to talk about it, but this is a shared grammar that we've inherited. So what we need to understand is the reason this is important, especially for us new Calvinist kind of people. And I'm not, I'm never really was a new Calvinist, but I'm talking about people who've been influenced by and who kind of the go-to translation is the ESV. We've inherited these, these, ways of talking and the way we talk is going to affect the way we think. We like to think it's the other way around, but in reality, the language that we use shapes how we think about something. And so when we talk about this, even I'm just going to, this isn't to pick on Jesse. I'm just going to kind of break down some of the, some of the hit me, the linguistic things that happened, even just in that description. When we talk about roles, it slides us over from the processions, which is an ad intro or an internal distinction within the Godhead, irrespective of anything else, right? Prior to creation, these distinctions held, they, they were true apart from creation, either before, or if God had chosen never to create, the son still would have been begotten of the father and the spirit still would have spirated or proceeded from the the father and the son. That has nothing to do with creation. The second we start talking about roles, it sort of subtly slides us over into the missions, which we'll talk about next week. And that's the economic ad extra activity of the Trinity, the outside activity of the Trinity. So, you know, it's, it's easy for us to talk about, we're talking about divine processions, we're talking about procession and, and begottenness and begetting, and then all of a sudden we're talking about the sending of the Spirit, and we don't even sort of recognize that transition has happened. Because it's a shared language, a shared grammar that we have, we have to be extra careful and extra clear on how we talk about that. So the sending of the Son into the world, the sending of the Spirit into the world by the Son, the Father and the Son together, those are the procession or the missions. See, it's easy to do the yeah, missions see, exactly. of the of the second and third person of the Trinity into the world. Right. Those are not the processions. They're related to the processions, and right. we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But they're not the processions, and that's where the EFS group, the ERAS group. I actually think the Eternal Functional Subordination group. It's weird because in some ways they're all the same thing, but each one of those acronyms has their own sort of particular focus. So the ESS, the Eternal Subordination of the Sun Crowd, tends to actually be more consistent in that they really do tend to talk about ad interest stuff a little bit more specifically. The EFS people tend to import those economic activities into the ex- the, the eternal trinity a little bit more. And the ERAS people are totally out in left field most of the time. They're, right. they're, they're talking about stuff that's actually like way different a lot of times than other people are. So we have to make sure that we set those boundary markers up. Processions, missions are not the same thing. They are related to each other and they influence each other, but we have to talk about processions as their own distinct thing before we can really go anywhere else. So if you go back to our our last week's episode about kind of basic doctrine of the Trinity, we talked about how there's one single shared essence that each person of the Trinity fully is or fully possesses, right? So the Father is everything that it is to be to be God. There's no leftover part of divinity outside of what the father is. It's a, it's a, it's a hundred percent overlap. It's not, it's not two overlapping circles. It's a single circle, right? 
The son is also that same thing, but they're not the same person. And that's where it gets tricky. But if we if we start to talk about um, the father being God in a particular fatherly way, or the son being God in a particularly sonly way, or the spirit being the you know being God in a particularly spiritly way, we actually aren't even talking about classic Trinitarianism anymore. We're talking about some sort of form of social Trinitarianism where the, the persons are actually God in distinct ways. God the Son and God the Father right. are not distinguishable because of because of their relationship to each other. They're distinguishable because the Son is God in a different way than the Father is God. Well, we're talking about tritheism. We're talking about two equal deities that are different from each other, right? Zeus and Poseidon are both God in the same way, even though they're different from each other. They're both God. Not, they're not God. You know what I'm talking about. They're both gods in the Greek system, <laughs> right? Zeus right. and Poseidon are are of like nature, right. the same way Jesse and I are. When we're talking right. about the Trinity, we're not talking about modifications of the divine nature, right? So it's it's really hard to think about. It's really hard to get our head around this, but we have to get out of that way of thinking. We have to get out of this way of thinking that says that the Father is somehow fundamentally identifiable as the Father apart from any reflection or discussion or observations of the son and the spirit. And that's, that's where somewhere like Doug Wilson, someone like Doug Wilson goes, right? He wants to say that the father has this unique quality of authority and the son right. has this unique quality of submission. And so the father is discernible as the father because he's authority and the son is discernible of as the son because he's submission. And if you really right. parse that out, we should be able to look at the Father without any consideration of the Son and Spirit and be able to identify, well, yeah, this is the Father. We might call him authority. This is authority, obedience, and then whatever we call the Spirit. You know, that that's not the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity actually would say, when we look at one person, if we're not reflecting on the others at all, then we can't tell which one we're looking at. If all I see is the omnipotent, omnibenevolent, holy, righteous, single, simple, person who is the divine nature, there's no distinguishing features that would tell me whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. That's the first thing we have to sort of like step back and land is that we shouldn't identify persons based on some sort of intrinsic property to their person. We have to identify them based on relations which are not, they're not extrinsic to them, but they're also not intrinsic properties. If right. you can't, you can't have a property of one or the other without the two being compared to each other, related to each other. And that's why we call them hypostatic relations or divine perceptions or something like that, personal subsistences, you know, subsistences of relation. Because we're we have to be able to look at two persons relative to each other in order to identify which one we're talking about. And this is how the right. scripture works, right? Right. In the New Testament, if you see the word God, you don't always know which person of the Trinity you're talking about. But if you see God and then God says something to his to the son or if Paul's talking about you know the the riches of God and then all of a sudden in the next sentence he's talking about the son well now we know he's talking about the father because we can compare the two to each other and see the relative relation between them yeah right on i mean 
we have a tendency, and I think we talked about this, to like identify or try to compartmentalize the trinity according like to the economic function, right, exactly, which is kind of like the the backwards way. Like, and we're kind of saying like we need to kind of like invest ourselves into digging deeper and start with like this uh, this essential essence, so to speak. So I'm with you. Like we tend to speak of, and even I just did about this idea of roles, right? But that's really probably not the best way. It's not. It shouldn't be the fundamental way, right? To speak about like the eternal distinctions between the persons of the trinity. There's a way in which role can be an appropriate term if we mean that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not interchangeable in the work they accomplish and in what they accomplish. But, and this is our problem as like, not our problem per se, but like modern evangelicalism's problem, there's too much reliance on this concept as role for identification, which undermines important doctrines like the simplicity of God or the unity of the divine will, or like the inseparable operations of the Trinity. And to like kind of recapitulate and summarize some of what you just said, what I think we've been saying all along is that traditionally the way in which the persons of the God have been distinguished in the reformed tradition, and they are distinct, which suggests like three hypostasis, which we talked about, they're not different. That would suggest like another usia is right. not by roles or by eternal relations of authority and submission, but by paternity, filiation, inspiration, which right. is a word I don't get to use enough. So it's that's true. why I wanted to say it right then. Yeah. So like this for us should be the place where we start with the Trinity, not just in like, well, here's what God does in the persons of God. Here's what they do, but who are they? And I can't remember if this particular visual summation of this has a name. You know, the image I'm talking about where it's like, God is God. God is not the son. Yeah. God is, the son is not the father. If, if there's anybody I can think of that should have that tattooed on their back, it's you. Like, <laughs> I feel like that's a missed opportunity. Does that, does that thing have a name? It does. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I'll look it up if you can stall for me for a few more yeah, seconds. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. But I think like actually of all like the images we have, that's super helpful because it's getting to the center of what we're talking about here. That there is like a unity in God that is reflected in his simplicity, the idea that he's not composite parts, that there's a unity of the divine will, that the idea that through God exists in three persons, the triune God does not have three separate wills. Right. And then for me, like this inseparable operations, that the external works of the Trinity are indivisible and that each person is operative in all that God's eternal works uh, proclaim and accomplish. And that image, and in the fact that it's like negative and saying is not, is not, is like really a reflection of our capacity to want to identify something as is. And so it's really helpful to know that God is and is not And that. If you can give the name, people can Google it and then see what we're talking about. The name is called the Scutum Fide. (laughs) <laughs> which is a, is a funny word. It, I knew what it meant in Latin. That's why it took me a second to find find it because I couldn't remember the Latin words. It means shield of faith, basically. Yes. And so yeah. it's, it's kind of like the coat of arms of the Trinity is, is the way to think of it. And, you know, it has its problems, like namely that there's four circles instead of three circles. Like that's of the course. biggest thing. But that, that right. we're going to run into that any anytime we try to diagram this kind of stuff is we're trying to diagram the undiagrammable. But you're right, is that the, the strength of that um, the strength of that image or that way of way of sort of articulating things is that the only thing that distinguishes the father from the son or the spirit is that they aren't, he isn't the son or the spirit, right? Exactly. What this misses, and I've actually seen some people try to try to add it in there is, is the processions themselves. Because right. now, now right. not only can we say, well, like this person isn't the other two persons, we know that, but that still doesn't quite get us to which one is this person. 
And so that's where the that's where the tradition has come up with these traditional or these these ways of talking about what the Bible reveals to us about these persons as as they are in eternity past, right? So this is um Westminster Confession chapter 2 uh verse uh, verse chapter 2 section 3. <laughs> uh it says in the unity of the godhead, right? And godhead here is a, is a synonym for divine nature, right? It's right. it's similar to the term manhood or man yeah, manhood, godhead, that's the same term. So we're talking about the divine nature. In the unity of the godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, right? Three persons, these three persons. The Father is of none. So that's a relational term. It's uh, He's of Boom. none. The, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, right? So there's that relational thing. We can tell, now we have the Father, and we see the begotten one of the Father, begotten of the Father one. That's the Son. That's what we're talking about. And then it says, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from both the Father and the Son. So if we're not careful, and I've done this, I've done this in my own academic papers, and my patristics professor slapped me on the wrist a couple times about it. If we're not careful, what we do is we make begotten of the Father to be this sort of like property of the Son. It's right. it's this extra attribute. It's like you have you have you know like identical twins, but one of them has a birthmark, so you can tell them apart. Like it's got this extra attribute. That's not what we're talking about, right? It's not that the son has this extra attribute of begotten of the fatherness, or that the spirit has this extra attribute of proceeding from the father and the sonness. And I've used that exact language in papers before. What we're actually talking about is this relational quality. So here's an analogy that I've used in the past to try to try to help understand this. So everybody who's listening, unless you're driving, don't do this, but close your eyes and imagine two trees. You're standing at the, the back door of your home and there are two trees out in the back of your yard and they're identical in every possible way. They have the same number of leaves. They have the exact same height. They have the ridges in the bark are exactly the same pattern. Even the, the worms and things that are crawling on it are identical somehow. Now, your wife, friend, boyfriend, brother, whoever, somebody comes and says, hey, those are really cool trees. I want you to go. I want to go take a picture. Go stand next to the tree. Well, the, the logical question is, which one? And so he can't say, well, the one with more leaves, the one that has a right. bird in the branch, the one that the one that has this, you know, more squiggles than the other in the branch. The only way that that person could tell you which of the trees they're referencing is to say the one on the right. But right. that 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 concept has no meaning if there was just one tree. Right. If all you had was this one tree in the backyard and you said, well, go stand next to the tree on the right. You've actually now created this weird, impossible situation because there is no tree on the right. There's no such thing as right when you only have one tree. But now, since we have two trees standing next to each other, we can say, go take a picture next to the one on the right or go take a picture next to the one on the left. And that suddenly delineates them, not because the one on the right has some sort of intrinsic character of rightness or the one on the left has some intrinsic character of leftness, but because of their relation to each other. That's as close to what we can what we are talking about when we're talking about these eternal relations of begottenness and spiration is it would be like if, if you took the three persons of the Trinity and somehow arranged them in a line and you had the father, the son and the spirit in that order. Right. And you said, instead of saying the son, you said God, the middle 
or God the God the third right. or God the first. Right. Those are ways that we might talk about the Trinity in in sort of these relational categories. There's there's God the first. God the second being the second person of the Trinity, right? That's why we use that language, the second person of the Trinity and the right. third person of the Trinity. It's this relational category that doesn't add an attribute to the person, but it's still a, it's still some sort of way to distinguish and delineate them from each other without now, without now violating the actual principle that they are the same single nature. These are distinctions within that single nature that help us to see these persons that are presented to us in the Bible and to distinguish right. them from each other. Right. You know, what's helpful about that, as you were explaining it, I think, is that it emphasizes in your example that there is not a hierarchy of importance or magnitude or relation. So, and that is the key thing. Like you may feel like we're overemphasizing this idea as Tony just expressed about these trees, but that actually is the thing that we ought to celebrate about God. And it's worth, even though it seems foreign to us in our understanding or even our application of who he is, it doesn't remove the fact that it is absolutely true. Right. So I just looked it up. One fun way, maybe you want to celebrate this. And we are not, though I wish we were, sponsored by Mission Aware, but they have a t-shirt, which they're calling, they call the Trinity Seal, which is the, basically that crest that we just spoke about. I like the idea of a crest. Like this is a representation of God in some ways as best we can, but to emphasize this idea that we're just basically identifying God by marks of framing or anchoring because that's all we can do because like God is God is God. And we have a tendency to like actually de-anchor him or move away from whatever the opposite of anchoring is like to just be adrift and then try to find distinctions that I mean, without being too crazy, like don't really exist or inappropriately are manufactured because we just want to try to quantify who God is. We tend to go in the place of what he does and then say there's some speciality in that that defines his his essence or his being or the person. And that is a problem. So of course, there's like a lot of language which you have to be careful about here. But there's also, I want to emphasize like a lot to celebrate about who God is in this. Yeah, that he is consistent, he is unified, and that even in those the places where we cannot understand the recesses or corners of our mind, where we are a single person in a single personhood, and God is not like that, so we find these ideas to be mind bending and make our brains do a somersault. And that's okay. That should lead us to doxology and to worship, but we should never try to stray or reconcile those things when doing so puts us at odds with scripture or as like the ESS or ERAS or EFS causes us again to make bridges that are way too far away from the scriptures. They're trying to span something that was never actually intended to be spanned. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's... There are different ways to talk about these processions, right? Throughout the history of the church, you know, sure. Augustine maybe being the, the chief of, of this example. Oh, how have, dare you? Have I was used go there. other other word <laughs> pictures to try to describe this. I don't think that's a great idea because I think that the language the Bible gives us is obviously it's sufficient, but I don't I don't think we can do better than that. And that's right. not always the case. Like the doctrine of the the word Trinity itself is a a more thorough articulation of the doctrine that's present in the scripture than what the scripture gives us itself. That's, that's what systematic theology is. But I don't think we actually can do better than what the Bible has, but nevertheless, some people have actually gone and tried to do that and have come up with some things that are okay. And this is where, this is where it ultimately comes down to when you're looking at someone who's, who's espousing ERAS or whatever. If the analogy that they're forced to use somehow is dependent on the economy of the Trinity, then we're actually talking yeah. about something different, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so for example, 
Um, I, I'm looking for the exact quote because I don't want to misrepresent him. But Doug Wilson actually responded to a tweet of mine, right? I, I put up a post a post of him with a quote from one of his articles where he said that the father is authority and the son is obedience. And I asked, how can it be that those things are not different things? And his response was the same way the father can be the lover and the son the beloved, and yet they are one substance, just like that. Well, you know what? Fine, let's use that analogy. That's that's an Augustinian analogy, right? The Father is it the is. lover, the Son is the beloved, and then the Holy Spirit is the love between the two of them. Well, that doesn't require us. That that way of talking is still relational, right? It's still these these subsistent relations. You have kind of a first person who's the lover, and then you have the pers- the object of that love is the Son, who's the doubly lo- loved, and then there's kind right. of this love between the two of them. That's the third the third object in this picture. But that still doesn't require us to postulate anything outside of the Trinity, right? So that's fine. However, when you get to the analogy that I was actually pointing out he was using, authority and obedience, which he he ties to that the Father sends the Son. Well, where does the Father send the Son to if we're not talking about something outside of the Trinity? So he is his that analogy requires us to go outside of the Trinity for this identifying feature. Authority and, and obedience, what, what's the command? If we're not talking about the ad extra trinity, what, what's right. the command that the son is obedient to? What is the command that the father is issuing if it's not to go into the world? So so when we have these different, different alternative ways to talk about the processions, some of them are okay, right? I don't love it, but Augustine uses like the mind, the will, and the intellect, Right. right. Well, those are still all internal, right? There's, there's kind of like Carl Barth. I don't love Carl Barth, but he had like the thought the the father is the thinker and the father thinks a thought about himself. And that thought is so perfect that it's actually a second person. That's the son. And then the father and the son kind of think about themselves together. And that's, the, that's the spirit. Well, those are all still things that are internal to the Trinity. So, so even though that's not a great way to do it, it's still legitimate. We're still talking about the ad intra internal Trinity. When you get to like Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, Owen Strahan does this explicitly in Grand Design on page 93. You know, Doug Wilson does this in his, the article that I was critiquing with this image I made. You have to, they have to go outside of the Trinity and then they import and smuggle those external categories into the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's the problem with EFS. They're confusing. And this is why I say eternal functional subordinate is probably closest to an accurate label of the system. Because what it's doing is it's taking the functional add extra Trinity and it's importing it into the eternal Trinity. And those aren't two different things, but it's two different concepts that we have to talk about. This is why it's important is because if we're not careful, we don't understand what we're doing. If we don't keep in mind that whatever way we talk about the way that the persons are related to each other, if we're talking about them in any way that requires something outside of the Trinity itself, then we're not talking about the processions anymore. Right. And if we take the processions and we just cut and paste and drop them into the eternity, uh, sorry, if we, if we talk, take the missions of the Trinity, the sending of the Son, the sending of the Spirit, and we just kind of click, drag, and drop that into eternity, what we've done is we've taken created missions, right? The missions are not eternal. They're not, they're not necessary. They're contingent missions. Right. The Father didn't have to send the Son into the world. The Father and Son didn't have to send the Spirit into the world. They didn't have to create the world at all. So we're talking about contingent created missions of the Son and the Spirit, importing that into eternity, and now we've imported creation into eternity. 
So it's no wonder that we're dealing with a different the different concept of the Trinity entirely. So it's important for us to kind of land and make sure we hedge those boundaries. I know like this is one of those things where we're just circulating on the same thing over and over again. But it's just that important. You can probably hear my dog is even worked up about the doctrine of the Trinity on this. Like she's Scottish, she's angry, she's she just she loves the Westminster Confession. She's a Westminster Highland Terrier. Okay, That's enough true. enough of the puns. If we don't hedge our boundaries properly, then we do end up smuggling in these created categories. And I know it sounds weird right. to talk about like the mission of the sun being a creed created reality, but it is. It it's is. not it's not an eternal necessary part of what it is to be God, to create a world and then to redeem that world. That's not that's not fundamental to what it is to be God. God does it. That's kind of part of the mystery actually. But if we smuggle those created categories in, we end up with something very wrong. What we end up with is a God who actually is dependent on his creation for his very identity. Instead of the sun being sent to save the world because the sun is the sun, what we end up having is we have a son who is the son because he saved the world. It's like he earned yes, his right. description as son right. by being sent and being obedient right. and sending the world, you know, saving the world. That's not at all what the Bible presents. The son, right. the you know, in, in eternity past, Psalm one ten, my Lord said to my Lord to the Lord, right? Adonai said to Yahweh. Adonai was already Adonai, and Yahweh was already Yahweh. It's not. It's not as though the son became the son because he he was going to be anointed as the Messiah. Like that's not what we're talking about. And we have to be really careful about that. Yes, you're right. I think that's a good place as any to kind of let everything marinate for a little bit. This yes. seems heavy and it is. It's maybe I could say unironically in somewhat in an obscure way, like this is God's jam, but it's also not his jam in, in the sense that like who God is, isn't necessarily what God does, but what God does is who he is. Right. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. And uh, this is a different way of thinking about who God is. And we have a tendency to associate people, especially in Western culture by what they do, which is why we always ask, what do you do for a living? Right. So it's even that, that just generic and that basic like point of connection that we kind of have to obliterate when we come to God. Yes. Actually, we, we don't kind of have to, we, we have should. To. Right. And this is like a helpful way to kind of maybe challenge some people to think a little bit differently. So if this wasn't enough, if you're thinking, man, I would just love if Tony and Jesse went on for six or seven or eight hours on this. <laughs> um, we, we haven't, we could, but like other things we might recommend. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing Tony, you will agree with me on this, but I'm going out on a limb. One thing I would recommend is Augustine's work on the Trinity, yes. which I think is really helpful in this and yeah. actually is shockingly approachable. Would you agree? Yeah, it's very good. And, Sometimes people read it a little bit wrong and they get kind of stuck in these Trinitarian analogies and they get all upset about that. You really, because you have, it's like you only get upset about that if you haven't read like the first five parts of the book. You get, like <laughs> right. if you just kind of parachute Fair. in on the, the Trinitarian analogies, it's really offensive to your sensibilities. But if you actually get to the point where you've read the, all the theology that he's building, it's almost like he's doing exactly what we've just done. Like he yes, articulates he the doctrine and then he's like, but I know that that's not really super easy to understand. So here's some, maybe some analogies that might maybe clear it up a little bit. That's what that is. Right. So yeah, it's very good. Um, in the new series, the new studies in dogmatic series that Zondervan has put out, there's both uh, a series or um, uh, an entry on uh, the Holy Spirit, which is by Christopher Holmes, I believe, talks a lot about processions, heavy on Augustine and uh, Aquinas. And there's also an entry called the Triune God, which is by Fred Sanders. Both of those are very, 
very good on this subject. They're very technical, but if you're looking to dig in a little bit, those are both excellent on this. Yeah, those are great. And if you're looking for free books, that's something we can also help you out with, right? True. It's true. We are running a contest. If you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, uh, or if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash 264, you will find one of those little modules that everyone loves to hate, where you do everything except share it with your friends because you don't want to actually give them more options to win <laughs> over you. But yeah, it's, you know, go <laughs> click here, or like here, or subscribe here. Uh, really what we want you to do with that is to just enter and win free books. Uh, and you just have to do the things. I know they're annoying, but you just have to do them. Wait, did we say what the book was? We didn't yet. That's you. Oh, sorry. That's me. Okay. Yeah. My turn. In my internal persistent... script in my head that I didn't share with you, it's you. <laughs> I thought for a second you said in your eternal script. And no, I was no, like, no. wow, from the beginning of time, <laughs> you had designed this yes. moment to be kicked over to me. It's true. It's I mean, that's true. Prayer. That's actually theologically true. Well, theologically, it's totally yes, solid. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's that, the book we're talking about is Persistent Prayer by Guy Richard. Jesse has some per- persistent attempting to say that title without me talking over him. <laughs> yes, Persistent Prayer by Guy Richards is an entry in the uh, Blessings of the Faith series, all three book series that PNR put out. And they were gracious enough to provide us with copies of all yes. three of those books for our giveaway. So we're super thankful to them for that. So uh, if you're shopping for some no, no uh, reason midwinter gifts, head over to prpbooks.com. They have their whole catalog, lots of good stuff. I don't know any pastor, any reform pastor who would not love it if you picked up like like Turretin's Institutes of Language oh, Theology for, sure. for them and just left sure. that at their office with a nice little like happy midwinter, no reason season card. Do they make those cards? We should make those cards. Oh yeah. We should absolutely make those cards. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of being grateful and for having opportunities to love one another, I want to give a special shout out to our brother, Michael, who joined through Patreon, who has been willing to pledge some financial resources to help make the podcast going forward. This thing, you've noticed that there's no like commercial segments in this. <laughs> like there's no sponsorships where like they're domineering the podcast. This will always in, in every way be free. And so the reason why that happens actually is because there are many lovely brothers and sisters who actually give above and beyond through Patreon to help support all of the costs that we have. So brother Michael, thank you for coming alongside and supporting us in this way. And of course, we're thankful for everybody that listens, listens voicemails, sends emails. All of this is part of what it means to, again, throw everything in the blender of Reform Brotherhood and outcomes like this delicious, amazing, very thick and rich smoothie. <laughs> but not in a weird way. It's yeah, delicious. It's delicious. There's one, no uh, kale in it. One other little plug. We're not sponsored. This doesn't really have anything to do with anything, except that I did sort of low-key bash on the ESV and maybe call it into question a little bit earlier. <laughs> I got my notification that my new LSB Bible has shipped. Get so, out. You got one? Yes. If you have not gone to LS, is lsbible.org, I think, is the website. Uh, just look up out. LSB Bible. It might be a little bit sketchy because it's all translated by like one group of people from Master Seminary. So maybe be on the lookout for a little bit of dispensationalism <laughs> embedded in the translation. <laughs> but it's worth checking out. And it is it is a bit, from what I've read, it's a bit more literal even than the ESV. Yes, um, it is. So 
every Bible translation has its purpose, but uh, we've we've kind of mentioned it on the show. It looks like the orders are being fulfilled and getting shipped out. So go check it out. I know that it's kind of a limited run for the first printing. It so is. you should go you should go purchase yours now. We really don't I don't know why I'm selling this so hard. We get nothing from this other than hopefully getting a really good Bible translation into your hands. Yeah, it's it's a great resource, which I will try. I'm just gonna give you the warning now in front of everybody. I will try to snipe that from you. It's, when it's I not see even you, gonna I'm gonna come try over to, take to that. it's not even gonna come into your presence. <laughs> just saying. Now that you've now that you've straight up tried to tell me you're gonna How dare from you? Me. I I will find this Bible and I will get this Bible. The Bible this Bible has a very special set of skills that makes it a nightmare for people <laughs> like you. <laughs> Just throw wow. that taken the taken monologue in there. <laughs> that was uh, that was well done and clearly a missed opportunity on behalf on behalf behalf of the LSB for advertising <laughs> and marketing. They should this, they should do somebody should put together a taken monologue. That's, that's what like, I'm saying. I can't. I'm gonna. I can. I'm gonna not gonna try to do a Liam. Here we go. Here we go. Accent, here we go. Go ahead. It's go like, ahead. I have, it's like on one end of the phone, it's like Wayne Grudem, he's holding an ESV. And then like John MacArthur pops up with his LSB and he's like, I have a very special set of skills that makes me a nightmare for translations like you. <laughs> Somebody make this YouTube video. Uh, Les Lanfear, what, listen, I'm, you, this is, this is all it. you. It's all you, Les. Yeah. He doesn't listen um, to the show, so he's that's not going to Well, that. he should, because this should. is a golden opportunity. We're really doing everybody a favor by suggesting this. Well, let's do everyone a favor and not carry this on any longer. <laughs> Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.